Last weekend, the U.S. corporate-owned media was gushing with enthusiasm and excitement over an armed coup attempt against the Russian government. That coup has ended, but the U.S. proxy war with Russia inside of Ukraine continues to grind on. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome to The Socialist Program. I'm your host, Ryan Becker. Today, we're talking with Eugene Perrier. Eugene is an author. He's the author of a, or co-author of a recent book called China's Quest for a Socialist Future. He's also the anchor on the Freedom Side Live, a live video show here on Breakthrough News every Thursday between 3 and 5 p.m. Eugene Perrier, welcome back. Thank you so much for having me. Very happy to be here. Thank you, thank you. Eugene, you know, I don't watch TV. I certainly don't tune in to CNN or MSNBC or Fox News for news because I know that these are echo chambers for variant sort of political wings of the US ruling class. They're echo chambers for ruling class politics. You can't really learn anything because they are indeed propaganda channels. But I had to tune in on Saturday because this was pretty dramatic, an armed coup attempt against the Russian government. And I, you know, I felt I was back in 1989 when I turned on the TV and watched about Tiananmen Square when there was such enthusiasm and excitement, like the US media seemed like they were actually part of the struggle to topple a government. And the coup effort was led by Prigozhin, the leader of a mercenary force, the Wagner force. I mean, just think Eugene, if. Prigozhin had become the head of state of Russia. He would control the second largest nuclear arsenal in the world. None of that seemed to matter to the U.S. media because the desire to topple the Russian government, that trumped everything, so to speak. Anyway, the coup did end. I just want to get your, before we get started, we want to talk about why did the coup happen? Why did it end? Who's Prigozhin? Why are there mercenary armies fighting in Ukraine alongside the Russian military? Did the U.S. intelligence services know about the coup? Were they in on the plot? We want to we want to cover a large range of topics, but I want to start with the U.S. media coverage because it was disgusting, it was gross, and there was hardly anything objective about it. Anyway, your take? No, I, I think that's a very good point. I mean, you know, the Wagner Group, which prior to this event had been 100% described in the Western media as you know perhaps the worst force of people on earth, you know, committing the most war crimes, being involved in, you know, the most egregious forms of profiteering and exploitation on the African continent, and on and on and on. And, you know, most of that, except for maybe the odd sort of peripheral reference, just sort of fell out of the news all of a sudden. And it was really just being reported in a range of different ways. But I think you've already described it correctly in your question. And I think part of the the nature of the U.S. coverage is not even so much a, or and not just U.S., Western more generally, 
I think it's not even necessarily an endorsement of Prigozhin per se, but an excitement about the destabilization and potential breakup of Russia as a country. I mean, this is something that, you know, is sort of a stock in trade, if you will, among elements of the Ukrainian far right, for instance, who are, you know, a key part of the government there and a key part of the Ukrainian military effort that, you know, the way they sort of expect to win the conflict, since Russia is such a large country, it has a much bigger population, a much larger industrial base, a huge military that has all sorts of weapons, including nuclear weapons, that essentially is that by having the war grind on long enough that it could create some element of destabilization that would ultimately lead to the collapse of Russia as a country and the breaking apart of the country and the ability to use that balkanization to then not only win the war, but of course, carry on with the overall goal of certainly U.S. foreign policy. And I think all of its various satrapies all the way down to the grassroots of the Ukrainian far right, which is to, as the 1991 defense policy guidance national security strategy said, to make sure that Russia is demilitarized and cannot play any sort of role in the regional sense of Europe or in the global sense that could challenge U.S. global hegemony. I mean, that was the essence of what Russia's role was supposed to be in this so-called Wolfowitz doctrine. And I think when you talk about Prigozhin, this guy who is a you know, a petty criminal, I don't know how petty, but it seems relatively petty criminal in the Soviet Union who, you know, worked various different side hustles, restaurants, this, that, and the third in order to ingratiate himself with the elite, who obviously himself is sort of a, a clownish individual and even how he often acts in many ways. And even, you know, you can look at some of like the pro-Russia Twitter and Telegram channels would point this out when he would make his videos. People would laugh and joke. It looks like he might be drunk, this, that, and the third. I think that anyway, you put all this together and the fact that Prigozhin might be able to succeed was something that I think was exciting to the sort of Western imperialist elite because it maybe to them it was a signal of the fact, yes, this is the moment we've been waiting for where the internal pressures inside of Russia are leading to the collapse. And these figures like Prigozhin could never govern a country like Russia with any seriousness that no one would take that seriously, which means that this would be the onset of a major power struggle inside the country. And you've got different power centers in the oligarch realm, in the, the state realm in and of itself, you know, the very, I mean, we talk about the Wagner group, but of course there's also, you know, the, the sort of semi-autonomous Chechen forces. I mean, there's all these sort of different power centers in today's present current Russia. I think that's what led to this feeling of, you know, why this potentially was good and why, you know, individuals who had said the Wagner group was terrible. I mean, you had Alexei Navalny, you know, who was telling people to take, or his movement, take to the streets, Khodorovsky, uh, I believe it's pronounced this oligarch who's moved from the country telling people to pick up arms. I think this is what was exciting the West, that this could be really a signal to this broader collapse of Russia, which I think is something that they would like to see. And one of the things I think they're hoping could potentially be, you know, a knock-on effect of this uprising. And you can even see it in the conversation amongst the so-called security analysts, and I'll close with this, of saying, when they were people were asking them in these different networks, well, what's America's main hope, the main thing they're concerned about? And their main thing they were concerned about is making sure someone who is, you know, quote-unquote, relatively trustworthy maintained control of the nuclear weapons. But outside of that, having the country break apart and have different power centers and people they can work with and rearranging the entire geopolitical, geostrategic space of European Russia and, of course, Central Asian and Asian Russia, I think, you know, is something that they would like to see in terms of the broader attempt to weaken the country. I think you're right. I think that, you know, Russia is too big to be a, a puppet government. It's too big. It's the biggest landmass on the face of the planet stretches all the way from Europe 
to the Pacific Ocean. It's got vast natural resources. So no matter who's the president of Russia, as long as Russia, if Russia is a strong or stable country, it's going to be in a foundational way, sort of an obstacle or a block to complete U.S. hegemony. I mean, I think the U.S. liked it when Yeltsin was president, but it wasn't really because Yeltsin, the man, was the president. It was because Russia was so weak. You know, and within six years after the collapse of the Soviet Union, the life expectancy for Russian men decreased by six years, an unprecedented drop in life expectancy during peacetime. All the public property, the great Soviet economy, the second biggest economy in the world, was torn apart, looted by these oligarchs. Most of the country was plunged into poverty. That's the Russia that America's content with. And I think that's the reason, like, when in the 90s, when Russia asked to become part of NATO, the U.S. said no, because they realized if Russia gets back on its feet and it's this big and it's that big, it's going to be like an alternative for Europe and an alternative for other countries to trade with. So the only outcome that really satisfies the U.S. is a weaker Russia. And when you think about it, Eugene, you think about, like, what happened to Iraq? Iraq was not a global power like Russia or the Soviets were, but it was a regional power. Or Libya. Libya wasn't a global power, but it was important in Africa. It was important in the Mediterranean. In some ways, it feels like if the U.S. can't have a puppet government, like, be just like a puppet on the string, the next best thing is to be like a wrecking ball. Just wreck the country. And as long as it's broken up. Anyway, it seems this is a recurring pattern in U.S. policy. No, I think that's a good point. And, you know, for people who want to get deeper into some elements of this, I can suggest an article I wrote that you can find on liberationnews.org called Is NATO Really to Blame? And it lays out that starting really in 1989, the number one consideration for the United States in terms of the imperative to expand NATO into Central and Eastern Europe was exactly that issue, that what the Americans most feared was that the end of the Cold War would actually lead to a rapprochement between the Western powers, France, Germany, et cetera, and Russia, because, you know, they have a lot of economic intercourse, they're in the same continent, at least, you know, a portion of Russia, so on and so forth. But the thing that they were concerned about there was sort of twofold. You know, one, the impact that that would have on U.S. geopolitical hegemony, which, of course, as they have laid out consistently, again, since 1991, is to have a, quote, unquote, rules-based international order where the U.S. makes all the rules and everyone else has to follow them, which means you cannot have any sort of entity that can economically and militarily and, you know, potentially even ideologically challenge this unipolar U.S. hegemony. And so what, for instance, Brent Scowcroft working in the for the Bush administration said to some of his advisors when they were talking about, you know, what to do in the post-Cold War era, he says, can we find a way to get the U.S. in between Russia and Germany. So this was their big concern to not allow there to be a sort of Russian European, you know, cohabitation that could whether that was their plan or not, that if it became their plan would then be able to offer some form of pushback to the US not just on a regional but on a global scale in terms of how they wanted to run things, which was complete and total domination of all the overall global world markets. So this has been a major concern of the United States. They've done everything possible to create these various blocks from that sort of Eurasian, Russian, German kind of alliance and whoever else that that might have drawn in. So, I mean, it's not just people making this up. I mean, this is what they're writing in their own policy documents, the public ones and the private ones, about what their general goal is towards Russia, which is to 
make sure it can have no international or regional influence on a social, economic, or military or political level, and that they will do whatever they can, including the reckless expansion of NATO, to prevent that. And when we talk about the reckless expansion of NATO, we have to really tie that to the empowerment of the most militaristic forms of government in Central and Eastern Europe, these post-Warsaw Pact, post-Soviet governments that were arising that are based deeply in the sort of anti-communist, often pro-Nazi, quite frankly, trends that were suppressed in the context of World War II and then in the context of the socialist camp that then came back to power in the wake of these governments falling, had an extraordinarily bellicose attitude towards Russia, and openly wanted to use and lobbied for the leveraging of U.S. military power to limit Russia. So you have this combination of the U.S. imperial desire and these you know, conservative reactionary forces in Central and Eastern Europe designed to do anything possible to limit Russia's influence. And if they could find a way to chip away at it, maybe even break the country apart, that they would, you know, do that as well. I mean, this was certainly, there's a complex history of this, but you look at how the various stances to the different conflicts happening in Russia in the 1990s, you can certainly see those trends also in Western policy. So I think this is, you know, whether it's breaking the country apart explicitly or trying to just neuter the country in terms of its own power, you know, ultimately the entire thrust, really 1989 on, of U.S.-led Western foreign policy has been to prevent Russia from being able to act as an independent force, as a counterweight, and on top of that, to act as a force that could draw others like the European countries into its orbit and end the unipolar U.S. dominance of the rules-based international order. Whether the different order would be good, bad, or indifferent is a separate question. It just wouldn't be controlled from Washington, and that cannot be allowed. Interesting. Let's talk about Prigozhin himself, why he did this, and also... In the middle of the coup, as Prigozhin had his armed march on Moscow, March for Justice, Putin went on national TV. He called on the country to remain united. And he denounced Prigozhin, who obviously had a previous association, including business, or maybe not business. I don't know exactly what the relationship was. The West always calls him Putin's chef. And Prigozhin was apparently the the owner of the Internet Research Agency, which, you know, the Mueller report and all of that Russiagate stuff said the International Research Agency and their $50,000 worth of Facebook ads were responsible for Donald Trump's election in 2016. So Putin gets on TV and says, this is treason and you're going to be held accountable. Now, there's no charge more serious than treason. And the next, you know, within a few hours, Prigozhin calls off his march on Moscow. He's in a conversation with Lukashenko and also obviously with Putin's coordination. And then he agrees to take refuge in Belarus in exchange for having the charges dropped. So here's the question. Why did Prigozhin do it? Why did he rise up against Putin, who in the past he had been close to? What were his goals? What was he really trying to accomplish? And why did Putin, after all was said and done, agree to let him go when obviously the alternative would have been a bloody suppression? And I think it was quite clear that Prigozhin didn't have sufficient support in Russia to succeed. So his revolt would have been suppressed. It would have been bloody. Anyway, let's, I want to get your opinion on those questions. Why did Prigozhin do it, if you have an opinion? And why did the outcome happen the way it happened? 
Well, I do have an opinion on Prigozhin's motives. And, you know, like I think anything, there may be mixed motives. But when you look at the timing of it, it certainly seems that his own profile and, and his profile had risen quite significantly. And I think the point you're making about sort of how he's often referred to as Putin chef, I think sometimes is kind of missed. I mean, he was sort of a serial entrepreneur type of guy. The way I understand it, he had some sort of restaurant catering business, and that's how he came to Putin's attention. But I say all that just to say that, you know, many of these businesses were relatively significant. And in fact, it seems now there have been some perhaps preliminary investigations. I mean, they're coming into the open now around some of his businesses. But my assumption is, you know, he was gaining wind of some of these things that were happening around just that. I mean, you know, I think there was something like a billion dollars in contracts that are linked to the Wagner Group. It may be more than that. There was, you know, food contracts. There was also money that they were getting from the state in and of itself for salaries and different elements of their own military activities. So both in terms of both subsidies and contracts, they were deeply involved in a financial and economic way, it seems, in the sort of, you know, nexus of the logistics of the war itself. And there were questions, and there seem to be now more emerging questions, of whether or not that was all 100% above board. So I think that's one element of it, is that some elements of his entire business empire were being questioned to a greater degree. And I think you can tie to that this issue of the command and control apparatus vis-a-vis the Russian military effort in Ukraine. I think anyone who's been watching the the effort in Ukraine has noticed there seems to be some level of, or it seemed to have been, some level of ambiguity around who Wagner was really reporting to and what their relationship was to the Ministry of Defense and to the broader high command. And so it seems that the government in Russia was trying to create clarity as opposed to, you know, gray area about what that was and was changing the laws around how these private military companies would be able to operate. Not that they would have to close down, but that they would have to have more formal contract-based relationships with the Ministry of Defense that would govern their activity, which would heavily curtail Prigozhin's, you know, seemingly relatively independent. I mean, obviously he was operating under a broader umbrella, but almost it seemed like he was operating like under Putin's personal leadership, but not necessarily under the leadership of the bureaucracy. So this would have brought him more under the line of people who he obviously, from his public statements, did not respect whatsoever. So I think the immediate proximate causes of this, to me, seem to be that Prigozhin, who had risen to this position of great power and influence inside of the broader Russian political, economic, and social sphere, was now seeing his power at least potentially curtailed and potentially quite significantly curtailed. And so he in my view, this is just my opinion, I don't know what was in his heart or in his mind, was trying to make a move to strengthen his position and strengthen his hand vis-a-vis these other individuals. I think this is why he did not initially call out Putin. He just called out the people he's been calling out for months now in terms of the military, in terms of the Ministry of Defense, other officials in the government, because I think he was hoping that he could use this as a leverage point against Putin to say, okay, you want to curtail me, but you know, you can't curtail me and I'm going to do this, whatever I want to call it, March for Justice or whatever it is to show you like what kind of support I have inside of the country. And then of these other officials would have to sort of fade away and he would either be able to keep his position or I think have an enhanced position in terms of how the war was being waged. But I say that also to say that I think part of why this ended the way it ended is because Prigozhin was acting on as far as I can tell, what seemed to be critiques and criticisms 
of some of the elements of how the war is being conducted that seem to be relatively widely held. I mean, the you know now famous in the Western media mill blogger or military blogger community, these you know individuals on Telegram, on Twitter, and others who are in favorable of the Russian war effort and reporting on it as closely as they can, who also have sort of a independent existence from the Russian state media. And you can see Putin has started meeting directly with them to talk with them and different things like that. You know, this is very frequent for people who follow that, that some of the criticisms you would hear from Prigozhin about, you know, the equipment, about the food, about the availability of ammunition, about the training, all these things were relatively widely held there. You would hear similar criticisms from the Communist Party that has been very critical of Wagner for some time, but similar sort of piece. So I think that part of what was happening here in terms of Putin's calculation was that that one, I think he did not want to have a, an incredibly bloody uprising that could spiral into something else. But then I think he also knew that, and related to this, that there was some popular consciousness that was resonating with some of Progrosin's criticisms. And the more intense the battle became, and the more intense the repression of Progrosin and Wagner came, the more that could potentially become a factor inside of Russia and be destabilizing towards the broader political agenda there. So I think Putin was both trying to contain the sort of military aspect of it, but also contain the potential political fallout that could come to being, because when you have a civil war type scenario, you got Russians killing Russians, you know, all the different emotions being inflamed, those sort of subsidiary, maybe not subsidiary, significant issues in terms of levels of discontent around how the war is being waged could have potentially become a much more significant political factor that could have, you know, destabilized things. And I think that ultimately by giving him sort of a slap on the wrist, it's also an acknowledgement by Putin, even though it's a, a very understated, subtle acknowledgement that even goes a little bit against some of his spoken words. It's a, a subtle acknowledgement, I think, to people in the country that he recognizes whatever the problems were with the Wagner uprising, they are actually in many ways related to Prigozhin's belief that he could succeed because of this, you know, I don't want to say widespread discontent. I don't know how to say it, but obviously existing discontent inside of Russia around some of these issues. So I think it was both military in terms of not wanting it to spiral out of control, but it would never have spiraled out of control if it wouldn't have had the possibility for there to be a political resonance among the population. Now, that did not happen up to the moment of the suppression of the thing or the ending of the thing, but ultimately the possibility, I think, was there. And I think that's partially why Prigozhin chose this moment, not just because he was under pressure, but because I think he felt he had at least some, you know, legs to stand on in terms of seeking popular support for his efforts to rearrange the military and political leadership of the country, as it seems he was trying to do with this effort. Right. And on June 13th, Putin came out publicly and agreed with the Russian defense ministry that every member of the different militias, including the Wagner group, would have to sign individual contracts with the Ministry of Defense. In a way, that would mean the Wagner Group was being incorporated more formally into the Russian military apparatus. It's a privately owned capitalist army, capitalist in the sense that Prigozhin is the capitalist. So it looks like he was about to lose his business. And he had been denouncing the Minister of Defense and the top general military command over the war in Ukraine. They had taken it, Putin hadn't spoken on June 13th, Putin did speak. He said, yes, everyone will have to register with the Ministry of Defense. So when you look at what the, the prompts are, the thing that prompts it could be a critique of the war, maybe even more fundamentally, although it overlaps. Prigozhin is a businessman, a capitalist. 
his business was the Wagner Group and he was being sort of losing his business. So he thought he had more support in the public than he obviously did. Maybe he thought he had some support in the Russian military more than he did. The end of the day, Eugene, Putin avoided this bloodbath, which it, what, it, what it would have been to suppress it. And probably most people in Russia are happy about that because one, civil war is terrible. A fight like that inside your country is like nobody wants that. And also it takes away, diverts from the, from the larger issue, foreign policy issue for Russia right now, which is the war in Ukraine and the war in the Donbass, the war that's right on Russia's border. So you can see why, even though Putin said he's a traitor, this is treason, he's gonna be, you know, pay the consequences. They let him go, but in return also, he calls off the March for Justice and all of his soldiers return to the base. And then Putin made another speech, it was short, it was two days ago, where he said the, the soldiers who were fighting under contract for Wagner had three options. One option was return you to your base, sign this contract with the defense ministry, and then we're all good. Option number two is if you don't wanna do that, go home to your families. And option number three was go to Belarus with Prigozhin. So obviously Putin has opted for a soft landing. And I think that in a way it makes sense given the, the magnitude of the challenge with the war with Ukraine. Anyway, we don't know. Neither you or I are, you know, we're not a fly on the wall. We're not inside those rooms. We're trying to make the best assessment that we can based on the information available to us. And undoubtedly, there will be more information that will come out. So we're not trying to give some final answer on any of this. We're trying to give a basically a political orientation towards these very, very important events. One thing that I wanna get your opinion about, going back to the US media, because that's how people in this country, in the United States are learning so much or mislearning is that we've always heard about the Wagner Group as mercenaries, 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 Prigozhin, leader of the mercenaries. Nobody likes mercenaries, they're paid killers, right? There's another way to talk about mercenaries, which is the way the American government and the US media talks about the mercenaries who work with the United States. They call them private military contractors. And if you think about the dimension of what's going on, in, at the time of the first Gulf War, Eugene, the number of uniformed US service members fighting in Iraq in the Gulf War compared to the number of private military contractors, equal mercenaries, was 50 to one. In the second Iraq War, in the occupation that began in 2003, the number wasn't 50 to one or even 25 to one, it was one to one. There were 180,000 private military contractors employed by the United States as part of the occupation of Iraq. So the thing is the American people never are told, oh, Blackwater mercenaries, the mercenaries, the mercenaries, you know, like this obviously negative connotation about paid killers. But I wanna to talk to you about this trend. Obviously the Soviet Union didn't rely on capitalist private armies at all. The Soviet state was stronger than that. But this phenomena of having private armies isn't simply a Russian phenomenon. 
No, I don't think so at all. I mean, I think you could argue that the U.S. has done a lot to pioneer the rise of this with exactly what you mentioned vis-a-vis Blackwater and others. And I think it's also worth noting here that one of the other pioneers of this sort of modern mercenary business are the former apartheid soldiers of South Africa that in the 1990s set up a number of so-called PMCs, the most famous one being Executive Outcomes, that, you know, started selling their trade to various different countries, usually, you know, trying to back certain agendas that were very malign economic agendas inside of the African continent. But it became, you know, really, I think, the precursor of the rise of a lot of this. And I think, you know, it speaks to a number of different factors. But I think more than anything else, it speaks to the rise of free market fundamentalism on a worldwide scale that we've seen since the late 1970s all around the world, the so-called rise of neoliberalism, which has, you know, denigrated state capacity in every single possible way. And in order to generate significant profits for the private sector, pushed to privatize almost every public good or service that is out there. I mean, you know, whether or not war is a public good, you know, whatever. But I mean, public in the general sense, like it's a governmental thing, it's a municipal, bureaucratic, whatever, whatever, to turn that into a private business. And so in the same way they want to privatize the water, you know, people want to privatize the military. And there are countries out there like, say, Sudan, that a lot of people have been comparing this to, where you have a similar sort of thing because there is no state capacity there because of the underdevelopment of the country. And that's one thing. And I think that's a slightly different issue, although there's some interesting relevant parallels there. But then there's what's happening, I think, in the United States, what's happening in Russia and Europe, you know, with the rise of these so-called PMCs, which is just the not the lack of state capacity in terms of what's potentially there, but the ideological attempt to destroy state capacity in terms of this neoliberal fundamentalism. And so you have an attempt to turn military conflicts into private business ventures in the same way almost every other sort of government service has been under significant pressure in basically all of the you know so-called first world countries to reduce their state capacity and make them into areas for plundering. And so I think you can see the same thing here happening with Wagner, with the sort of broader oligarchic neoliberal space inside of Russia. I mean, you know, Putin as a person has obviously, you know, reversed the just complete and total prostration of the country that was happening under Yeltsin, just selling the country for parts, more or less, just giving the country over to Western, you know, privateers. You might call them mercenaries too, even though they came with a briefcase, not a gun, in terms of how they destroyed the Russian economy and the Russian people and really all of Eastern Europe. But, you know, Putin really came in and he he didn't really changed the system so much as he stabilized it. And he stabilized it around a sort of stable group of oligarchic trust monopoly companies sort of fused with this state apparatus that he was over top of in order to bring some level of stability to the country, a level of growth to the country, to allow it to get up off its feet, to allow it to start to, you know, exploit its various human and material capabilities to a much greater degree to increase prosperity in the country, at least for a certain subset of the population. And so ultimately, it wasn't that Putin was like not a capitalist or, you know, was criticizing the free market fundamentalism per se, but he recognized this sort of law of the jungle way of operating was not going to do it. And he established a much stronger working relationship of these sort of capitalist oligarchic monopolies. But it also was operating on a very neoliberal logic of how, you know, quote unquote, governments or economies should be run in the 21st century, you know, as it concerns the sort of Washington consensus in that sense. And so in the same way you have this in the United States, you also have it in Russia, the rise of this sort of privatizing 
of military capabilities, of, you know, sort of power projection that has close ties to the state. I mean, you look at companies like Blackwater, you know, DynCorp, Triple Canopy, all of them closely tied to the political parties of the United States and deployed under the guise of the foreign policies these political parties want to see, similar to Wagner and Russia. But it's a private business entity, and it's part of the broader drive to destroy state capacity, to loot public goods and other things like that in order to increase the ability of the monopoly capitalists to reap as many profits as possible and hopefully raise their overall rate of profit and keep capitalism going you know, for a longer period of time than perhaps it looked like it would have been in the late 70s and the early 1980s when a lot of people were questioning, you know, whether or not capitalism was going to be able to quote unquote win and succeed given all of its various challenges. Mm. When the coup happened, I, I mean, even though you were paying attention and I know I was, and I think anyone who was really looking at the news, you could see Prigozhin's escalating rhetoric against the Russian defense ministry was to carry it out in wartime was really something like Blackwater is also employed by the U.S., Blackwater mercenaries. And they, at times, they had conflicts with the U.S. military. They lost their license to operate in Iraq from starting in 2006 because they were massacring and torturing people. They were like a law unto themselves. But they didn't openly, like, condemn the minister of, the secretary of defense as being, like, had blood on his hands, the blood of American soldiers. So it wasn't like that. Where Prigozhin was actually doing that. He was doing, like, filming himself and going on social media, denouncing the defense ministry. And Putin was kind of mum about that. We didn't hear anything, at least in public, that was Putin saying, you better stop. And then it's only on June 13th where Putin agrees with the defense minister and the military high command that all militia members have to sign contracts. And thus, Putin's obviously going along with ending Prigozhin's private capitalist army or his ownership over it. It says a lot, you know, it says a lot that the West portrays Putin as like this giant omnipotent force over the years, like he was the ultimate, you know, dictator with all of these powers. And then after the coup happened, it, all the media was, oh, this now shows that Putin is really weaker because the mystique of his power has been sort of, you know, done away with, and you can't get that mystique back. All of these insipid BS articles in the media. But if we step back, Eugene, and try to assess the war in Ukraine and what's going on with Russia and to do it with an objective faculty, my conclusion is that, and I'll get your opinion on this, my conclusion is that Putin, far from being like this omnipotent force, has always done the best he could playing essentially a weak hand, meaning that the Russian state, which was then part of the Soviet state, which was a strong state, but imploded not because of a, a counter-Soviet uprising from the masses, but the, the people at the top broke into warring factions, and then that Soviet state broke apart, and the multinational Soviet Union broke into separate independent pieces. It was essentially dismembered, and that Yeltsin weakened the country further, the shock doctrine and the selling off of public property. I mean, it was a, a real weakening. Like a, It was like a country had been destroyed in war, but there was no war. And then Yeltsin kind of patched it back together, disciplined the oligarchs, didn't get rid of them, 
but put them under the control of the state rather than letting them just run wild. But it's never been, from my point of view, that strong of a government. One, Putin is a person, he's not a party. If Putin were to get sick or die or anything like that, unlike the old days where if Khrushchev was removed for power or, or Brezhnev or Stalin, you had the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, so the, the country remained intact. It wasn't a, a question of succession, really. I mean, there was succession, but it wasn't an existential threat. I've always felt Putin is sort of operating on a, a shallower, more hollowed out ground in many ways, the country's smaller, the military's weaker, and the apparatus isn't as strong. And I think this was part of the reason the US wanted the Ukraine war, was if they could get Russia, provoke Russia, force Russia to make the decision to engage in a long-term military conflict because the Russian government felt this existential threat about Ukraine coming into NATO, then over time, either because of economic sanctions or just the pressure of war, Russia would be vulnerable to be destabilized. I really think this is part of the grand scheme of U.S. imperialism. And far from being this great omnipotent monster dictator, Putin is kind of doing the best he can to hold on, but he doesn't have the kind of formidable political, economic, or military strength that the Soviet Union had and so there is this underlying vulnerability. Again, I want to say that to people because when Americans are told we have to keep sending $160 billion more weapons to Ukraine because we care about Ukraine, that's not what it is. This has really always been about weakening Russia. No, I think that's I think that's certainly true. I mean, I think that's obviously the through line of, you know, pretty much everything we are hearing, you know, and it's become it becomes more and more clear the longer the war goes on. But, you know, you see these various senators on the Sunday shows. I think Chris Murphy said something like this, Mark Warner and others, Lindsey Graham, also the same thing, you know, that this is a great war because Ukrainians are killing Russians, you know, where they're fighting the Russians uh, over there. So we don't have to, you know, they're bleeding Russia. I mean, at first they were trying to dress that up a little bit more, but the the longer the war goes on, the more the mask comes off, at least from sort of the non-White House officials who don't feel the need to, you know, keep the PR game going in the same way. So I think that's relatively clear. And I think the general point you're making is correct. I mean, I think that, you know, Putin as an individual... I think it's worth noting here in the last presidential election, Putin ran as an independent. He did not run as a candidate of United Russia, specifically because he did not want to seem representative of just one political party that in and of itself was facing its own sort of PR crises over its ties to the oligarchs, to corruption, to bureaucratic challenges existing in the country, to growing income inequality and the like. He wanted to show himself as a unifying figure. And I think that's what he has been as a stabilizing and unifying figure who is able to come in use, you know, in many cases, pretty harsh methods to discipline this sort of oligarchic community and bring the economy into a place of stabilization. But of course, the oligarchs were still controlling the economy, but with much of a shorter leash vis-a-vis -vis their relationship to the state. But that also Putin was bringing together all the various social forces that had at least some interest in wanting to see this total just destruction of the country of the 1990s end and to see the country, you know, be able to rise to some degree again. And that, you know, is, of course, when we think, and there's overlap between how this all plays out, of course. And, you know, you think about the oligarchs, but you think in a more deeper way, I mean, you know, people who are nationalistic Russians of different types, but 
you know, who maybe look back to the time of the czar or just have a generally nationalistic attitude. And, you know, whether it's the czar, the Soviet Union, they're sort of eclectically piecing together things that Russia has done that have made them great over time. The Communist Party and other left forces who, you know, they knew that this was not going to be a new Soviet Union, but wanted to, you know, end this total untrammeled Western sponsored capitalist looting of the country. And that Putin was able to put together a coalition. And you can see it from the parties that tend to do the best outside of United Russia, the Communist Party, the Liberal Democrats. You now have this new party, Adjust Russia. I mean, they don't all, and many of them, especially compared to so-called Liberal Democrats, got to be the worst descriptor of any political party on the planet Earth. It's like a fascistic right-wing party. But nonetheless, various different ideological points of view, but that they basically all were under agreement that something needed to be done to put the floor underneath Russia. Something had to be done to start rebuilding the basement and the foundation of what had been destroyed. And that Putin was able to embody that spirit and bring together through seemingly his own personal diplomacy, these various social forces into a recognizable political entity or current that is what we know of Russian politics today. And so it's not that Putin is all powerful as he's presented in the Western media, but it's that he represents a majority trend in society, but it's a majority trend that has many differences amongst themselves. And the real Russia analysts, the people who aren't writing the propaganda, you know, in the mainstream media, the people who are really advising the people in the government, people who are working in the think tanks and the like, they know this very well. And I think it speaks exactly to your point is that the more you can increase pressure on Russia in general, the more these things that have been sort of secondary concerns become primary concerns. I mean, here's a good example. In the context of what we know is going on right now in the war in Ukraine, when you look at the Communist Party and the statements that they're making, they've been making the statements very clearly that the only way for Russia to succeed in this new environment of being extremely sanctioned, needing to turn towards the global south and towards East Asia, and so on and so forth, require a return to at least some elements, I mean, they would say all the elements, socialist elements of the Soviet Union in terms of nationalizing industry, in terms of putting significant more focus on high technology, not just from the point of view of the commodities, but from the point of view of education, to have science and technological education, to shore up the healthcare system. I mean, basically to start to rein in and in some cases eliminate the role of the market in wide swaths of Russian society. Now, you know, I think that speaks to a lot of people who are socialist and who can understand why that would almost undoubtedly strengthen the country and certainly make the conditions for working class people in Russia significantly better. But for the oligarchs, that's terrible. That's like the worst case scenario. So some of these things that were subsidiary in 1999, 2000, and 2001, 2004, I mean, forget that, 2020, in terms of the differences between the political forces, the more pressure you put the country on in the context of this war in Ukraine, the more those things could come to the forefront because they go specifically to the issue of how to effectively address not just fighting the war, but how to address the consequences of the sanctions and the isolation regime that's being brought down on Russia as a consequence of the war in and of itself. And that could potentially lead to significant domestic turmoil. And I think by extending the war for a long period of time, 
that is what the West is hoping, is that these things will start to germinate, you know, partially on their own. I mean, I'm sure the CIA and all these other forces, they're doing whatever they can do to push a little bit here, push a little bit there. But I think they recognize that they're pushing a little bit here and there on organic domestic differences in the country. And they're hoping to break apart that unity. Now, that being said, when you look at the reaction to what Prigozhin did, it seems like that unity is much harder to break than the West thinks, because people in Russia remember the 1990s. They remember the chaos of what happened when the Soviet Union collapsed. And I think they could see very clearly that whatever the truth of some of the things Prigozhin had been saying for all these months, and this is partially, I think, why he became so popular and why Putin, you know, sort of allowed this to happen, is that, yes, there's a kernel of truth to a lot of the criticisms he was making that people felt, yes, I agree, like, we should be doing some of these things differently. The military leadership doesn't seem to be doing it right. You know, my cousin, my brother, my uncle, who's at the front line, doesn't have any of the correct equipment, all these different things. People could hear that and feel that. But then when he decides to launch this, you know, very unpredictable military coup, I think a lot of people, whether they be communist, whether they be hard right wing type people, whether they be czarist, whether they be whoever, thought, well, wait a second. This could end up in a really bad situation for the country. We could end up breaking apart. We could end up having a, you know, a, a civil war. We could end up going back to the worst possible times, you know, in the history of Russia as a country you know, over a long period of time. And of course, Russians have a long history and they know that history. And I think that's when you see this sort of centrifugal tendency reasserting itself. And that's that centrifugal tendency that Putin has been managing since he came into power of bringing together all these different social forces that whatever their other differences feel like Russia had to get up off the mat and that the only way for Russia to move forward is to put forward the type of policies that Putin is putting forward in terms of trying to act more independently on the global stage and assert itself. And that that centrifugal tendency is very strong inside of Russia. It's hard to break apart because people know what the alternative might be, and that's pretty bad. But in and of itself, it also speaks to the fact that Putin is not all powerful and that he's sitting in the midst of many different contradictions and many different political forces that have a strong uniting factor. But given the broader outside context, you know, those sort of secondary, tertiary factors that divide them could very quickly become primary, and that could be a challenge. I think that's a lot of what the West is hoping to see happen. But I think as we've seen with this, you know, it's not as easy as the media is now making it out to be and saying, oh, he's so weak, blah, 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 blah. So it goes to the fundamental misunderstanding and deliberate disinformation about the Russian political system. You know, I mean, this is, you know, I'll close on this point. Every Russian election, all the election is stolen. You know, none of these people really support Putin you know, blah, 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 all these different sort of pieces that come out there. You know, I remember talking in, after the last presidential election to Boris Koglitsky, the, the Marxist scholar there in Russia, and I asked him what he thought about the election. And he said, well, there was probably some fraud. Some of the election was probably stolen, but I can't really understand why they would even steal it because at the end of the day, the election results in Russia basically reflect what people in Russia want. But the fact that the West has gone so far to demonize Putin, to deny that fact, is why the media now struggles to explain in a coherent or a persuasive way, you know, how Putin's power really works and how both something like this could happen, but it could also happen in the context of Putin being able to maintain power, end it quickly, and why no one really came off the sidelines to support Prigozhin, despite the fact that he had put all these criticisms forward that seemingly had some resonance in the populace. Yeah, very important points, Eugene. And as we kind of get towards the end here, I want to sort of reemphasize some of the points that you're making and sort of say a couple of things and then get your, your final words. You know, the, the struggle between the U.S. and the Soviet Union had an ideological component and 
there was the struggle between capitalism and communism. And certainly when I was growing up, we were told that this was communism equal tyranny, capitalism equal freedom and democracy. So it was a struggle between good and evil, but it was sort of presented as an ideological battle. Putin is not a communist. Putin is an anti-communist. I mean, he's, he's just created a monument for Fidel Castro in Moscow, and Fidel was the leader of the Communist Party of Cuba. So he's not an anti-communist like Rubio. He's got good relations with the Communist Party of China, with Xi Jinping. So he's not an anti-communist in that way. But when he presents about Russian history, he blamed Lenin for the creation of, of Ukraine because Ukraine as an entity only came into existence in 1922 when the Russian Soviets and the Ukrainian Soviets and the Belarus Soviets and the Transcaucasian Federation, which would be Armenia, Azerbaijan, and Georgia, signed a treaty to form the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics. So Putin said Ukraine should have never been its own sort of polity or entity. It should have always been part of Russia. This is Lenin's fault and the right of self-determination, meaning these different republics would have the right to become independent or divorce Russia, that was a fundamental flaw. So he's clearly anti-Bolshevik, he's anti-Lenin, he presents his story that way. So he's not a communist. But the US doesn't, it hasn't let up on Russia even though it's no longer led by communists, which shows that the, the struggle against the Soviet Union and the Cold War had an ideological side, but it also had this other side, which was in some ways masked by ideology, which was the struggle for U.S. hegemony against all other countries in the world after World War II, when the U.S. became the number one superpower. And so as long as Russia gets back on its feet under Putin, who is a centralizer, but an anti-communist, but proud and a patriot and somebody who wants to make Russia or retain Russia's sovereignty and independence and strength, he becomes almost as big of a target. And if you actually look at the way the U.S. media treats Putin compared to the way the U.S. treated Khrushchev or Brezhnev and certainly Gorbachev, he's treated as an even bigger demon, which shows that the ideological sort of presentation about the Cold War was a one-sided propaganda thing by American propaganda too, because it had this other thing that wasn't explained to the American people. The U.S. wants to be the world hegemon in any country, regardless of the ideological orientation of its leadership, is gonna be targeted. And the other point, my final point, is that something you hinted at, and I wanna just, as we close out, get you to speak to the first point I'm making, but also this point. The Soviet Union had a lot of experience at being a self-reliant power because of economic sanctions because of the blockade by Western capitalist countries, it had to become very self-reliant. It was the most self-reliant economy in the world because it was forced to. It was sealed off from the world economy. Now the imperialists have sealed Russia off from the world economy in a way. And Putin, even though he's not a communist, he knows the history of Russia about how to be self-reliant. And he also knows that this is fundamentally going to be a function of the state. So at a certain point, the state will become the instrument rather than private enterprise of maintaining the self-reliant capacity of the state to exist. And in some ways, and ironically, irony of ironies, it can start to resemble the Soviet economic system, 
with five-year plans with the state playing this major role, even though Putin himself is not a communist. Anyway, that's a lot there, but there's these two different dimensions, and you've hit on both of them, and they're both big, big, and important topics, so I want to close out on that. No, I think you're making a very important point. I mean, you know, I can offer an opinion, but I think if they don't start moving more in terms of the state-led economic development, the country will collapse under the weight of sanctions. I mean, you look at the announcement that was made in the earlier part of this week that various Russian airline industry companies are trying to move towards being able to build more of their own airliners now. I mean, you know, that this used to be something the Soviets did all the time. The Russians lost some of that full capacity. There's a lot of planes that they're leasing from the West and different things like that. You know, at least one of the estimates I I saw is that until about 2030, the current sort of air fleet in Russia is probably basically fine, all things considered. But after that, because the inability to get spare parts and other things from the West and these other companies that are playing a big role in the global aerospace industry, they will not be able to operate in the same way. And so ultimately, that means that in just five years time, that if they don't do anything that different in terms of you know increasing their own ability to indigenously replace some of these parts that are coming from Western companies, that the aerospace space industry, or at least the airline industry of the country, will collapse. And so ultimately, those are types of things that have to happen, you know, not from just the point of view of profit, but from the point of view of necessity. And that, quite frankly, there may be a lot of reasons for, from a profitability standpoint, to just kind of ride it until the wheels fall off. But if you can't do that from a political standpoint or a sort of a political economic standpoint, and this is why Marx says political economy is the most important thing, not the economy writ large, then you have no choice but to be able to operate your science, your technology. I mean, if you have things that you do not make, you have to then heavily accelerate your educational apparatus, your research apparatus, your testing apparatus, in order to be able to make those things. And if it's on a certain time scale, you have to then be able to direct all the resources towards that. I mean, obviously, the most famous case of this in the issue of the Soviet Union was the famous 1980 gas turbine issue. You know, the CIA sabotaged the gas turbines, and ultimately, the Soviet Union just turned all of its resources to build its own gas turbines to be able to operate this huge pipeline into Eastern Europe that the U.S. thought that they could sabotage. But the ability to sort of turn everything towards these sort of political economic goals to shore up the the nature of the, the country is really not something that can be done on a pure market basis. And so I think that there's really no doubt that these sorts of changes will have to happen if Russia over the longer term is going to be able to survive. You know, you look at the issue of shipping. You know, right now, there's so many attempts to stop any foreign companies from shipping Russian goods of any sort, but Russia is still able to sell many commodities all around the world. So you can see already the government is starting to build more ships. Well, if there's a point where building more ships is not profitable, but they need more ships to be able to send that oil to India, then the government just has to build more ships, even if it's at no profit, to keep the oil industry from collapsing. And so ultimately, I think that there is is really no choice. I think that the Russian economy is cornered, but I think that it does create a huge political contradiction because what will the oligarchs do? To what extent will oligarchs accept that? Some, I think, will look to be folded into the state-led system like this because they'll look at China, they'll look at Vietnam, and they'll see how you can be in a sort of state-led, not fully marketized society where you can still make a lot of money, but some could become political opposition types and try to stir up trouble. And I think that will be an interesting sort of political fault line moving forward. But I do think that that's a critical and important point of, of where Russia is at right now. And it does speak to this overall issue of the competition between the two. I mean, it is about hegemony. It's about control. The imperialists will work with anyone as long as you fit into their overall plan for hegemony and control over the world. I mean, Vietnam, 
is a communist country. Vietnam certainly is operating their economy in a way that is not commensurate with capitalism. But the United States has great relations with Vietnam right now because they're trying to turn Vietnam against China to contain China. So it's all fine. Just like they were willing to work with China against the Soviet Union. And just like they had no problem shipping jobs to China as long as they were just making Nikes, not cell phones. So as long as you're operating in a way that doesn't challenge the ability of the U.S. capitalist elites, the Fortune 500 companies, the Wall Street banks, to more or less control everything that's going on, there's no problem. As long as you are in the place that they have assigned to you in the hierarchy, you're good to go. But Russia represents, even as a non-socialist capitalist country, a country that has as it's, you know, sort of in its leadership core, deciding that they want to play what role they want to play. They don't want to be assigned a role by Washington, D.C. or by Brussels or by anyone else. And they are willing to help any other country around the world that also says we, too, do not want to be assigned a role. We want to play whatever role we think we should be playing in the economy. So Russia has become a pivot point, not the economic pivot point of China, but you can see the China-U.S. relationship is such that China operates geopolitically in a different way. So Russia really, from a geopolitical standpoint, has become the pivot point for all of the countries of the world, whatever their ideology, that want to say, okay, we're going to do what we want to do. We're not just going to be assigned some you know, role. And that's why you can see Russia playing a big role in Latin America, in Central Asia, in East Asia, in Africa, in Southeast Asia, all over the world. I mean, why is ASEAN working so closely with Russia? The ASEAN countries are close to America. Many of them are good allies, but they also want to rise up on their own. They don't want the U.S. to just dictate a role to them. So they know the easiest way to deal with that we got to work with Russia. We can use that as leverage, as pivot point, as economic growth, all these different pieces. And so you have even U.S. allies, Saudi Arabia, others, Israel, the greatest of all U.S. allies, the total tool of U.S. imperialism, all these different countries working more with Russia because it's such a, an oppressive, paternalistic, you know, dying, decadent, imperialist system that no one wants to be trapped under that wet blanket as it continues to go down. And no one wants this sort of decrepit, you know, last leg type empire determining whether or not they're able to use their human and material resources and capacities to the level they would like to and the way they would like to, and to perhaps dominate over the U.S. and other elements of the West in certain areas of the global economy, culture, and so on and so forth. And so I think that's what it really comes down to. It's not about ideology per se. It's the point where ideology ideology becomes a material force and where your ideology takes you outside of the, the structuring hierarchy that imperialism is allowing. And I think that's what Russia has already done. And it will be interesting to see how that develops. But I do think absolutely we're going to see this fault line continue to run through global politics because, again, even some of the closest U.S. allies feel that they've gone too far in terms of their attempt to police the world and control it. Indeed, we are in a new era of global politics. Eugene Perrier, thanks so much. Thank you. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And watch video episodes of our in-depth show, The Real Story, every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on YouTube with our partner, Breakthrough News. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. Thank you.